0: So let's stand together as we read God's word. Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to read the entire chapter. So the word reads, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring great judge I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in peace. In a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down. And it was dark. Behold. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Passed between these pieces. On that day. The Lord made a covenant with Abram saying. To your offspring. I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Riphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the enormous blessing of your word. We pray, Lord God, that in the next few moments, as we share from your word, that by your word and by your spirit, you would touch your people. And Lord, we pray that you would do all that you desire to do. You said that you would not send out your word without accomplishing what you desire. So we look to you and you alone right now to do exactly that. We thank you for it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I have a great word for you today. Amen? Dang, nobody believes it. It's not a great word because it's my word, but it's a great word because it's God's word. And what a promise that we have here in this incredible chapter of Genesis chapter 15. The title today is The Greatest Promise. The Greatest Promise. And I'm going to look at three different aspects of this as we work our way through this chapter, and I'll give you the three things we're going to look at right now. First of all, the promise, why is it the greatest promise? It's because it satisfies the deepest need. The promise satisfies the deepest need. We'll see that. Secondly, the promise is secured by faith alone. The promise is secured by faith alone. And lastly, the promise is sealed by a divine covenant. And we'll look at each of those three things today. So first of all, let's start with the fact that the promise satisfies the deepest need. All of you have been promised something in your life by someone. And all of you have also promised someone else something. Now, the reality is you haven't made good on all your promises, have you? And those who have promised you things... Haven't made good on all of their promises either. Our promises are sometimes kind of sometimey promises, right? We're not we're not always secure, and and the fact that we have to promise, you know, we have to. I promise. I promise. I'm going to do it. A lot of times is a dead giveaway that we're not really going to do it. I promise. I'm going to do the dishes tomorrow. Yeah, right. Talk to your roommate. Did they actually do the dishes tomorrow? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, but. It doesn't get done. Now, some promises are important promises. When a man gets on his knee and pulls out a beautiful little rock on a nice little round ring and puts it on on the finger of that young lady, that's a beautiful promise. When we stand before a preacher and we say, I do and I will Until death do us part, that's an incredible promise that's made. That's an important promise. But there's other promises that we make that aren't nearly as important as that one. Um, Some of you know that Pastor Mason loves coffee. Amen. I mean, he loves coffee, but he just doesn't love any old kind of coffee. So if I promised Pastor Mason, I said, Pastor Mason, I promise I'm going to give you a lifetime supply of coffee. You would think because he loves coffee, he'd get happy, but he wouldn't. I I promise you he wouldn't. He would say, what kind of coffee are you going to give me? Because if you're giving me Maxwell House or Dunkin' Donuts or X, Y, he would go through a whole list and say, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I only want a certain kind of coffee. And if you don't come with that, don't even come to me. Well, we're going to see here in these verses that when God offers this promise to Abram. It is a promise that meets Abram at the place of his very deepest need. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In chapter 14, Abram had just gone through a bit of a war. His nephew Lot had been taken away with all of the people Uh, and all the possessions that Lot had uh, by five different kings. And Abram took his household and his trained men, and they went against these five kings, and they rescued Lot. So here was Abram. He's living in this strange place. It's like he moved from the Poconos into North Philly, right? He comes into Canaan land where these All these different kings and all this other stuff going on. And now he goes and he raids those kings who had just won a war against a bunch of other kings. And he gets out his nephew, all his people, all his possessions. So Abram has just made a bunch of enemies on the blocks all around where he lives. Abram is scared and in trouble. And God says to Abram, I am your shield. I am your shield. Abraham, you don't have to worry about all those kings. You don't have to worry about all their weapons. You don't have to worry about a sneak attack. I am your shield. The need that Abraham had and that he felt was that I need protection. And God says, I'm your protection. But there was even a greater need because he said, I'm your shield and your very great reward. But look what Abram says after the Lord says that to him in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and and a member of my household will be my heir. This got to the deepest need that Abram was feeling uh, at all. In Genesis chapter 12, God said, had come to Abram for the first time and said, I want you to leave your father's household. I want you to leave everything you've ever known, every place you've ever been. And I want you to go into the land of Canaan. I want you to follow me. And he promises Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis, I will make you a blessing to all the nations. But now it's eight years later, perhaps somewhere around that. And Abram still hasn't had a child. Abram and his fantastic looking wife, Sarah, have not been able to conceive a child. And Abram has this promise that God gave him. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And yet he's got no child. And so when God says, I'm your shield, I'm your great reward. Abram's saying, in effect, what is a reward worth to me? If you gave me everything, Lord, you've made me a rich man. You have blessed me already incredibly. The Bible says he had 318 trained men in his household that went out and recovered lots. So he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of people. He's got possessions all over the place. But he says, what is a reward to me? I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. How can I be a blessing to the nations? without an heir so he is at this point of need look what the Lord says in verse four and behold the word of the Lord came to him this man he doesn't even call him by name he doesn't say Eliezer because that would kind of give him some affirmation that maybe Eliezer is something but he just says this man this man will not be your heir Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to. If you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. What a promise God gives to Abram. Look to the stars. See if you're able to to number the stars, so shall your offspring be, he says, to an 80-plus-year-old man who has no kids and who has been given this promise before that he's going to be a blessing to the nations. See, God, when he comes and gives you a promise, his promise is not just to meet some external temporary need that you have. His promise doesn't come to make you feel good for a little while because you're disappointed or mad or hurt or something like that. His promise is not comfort food to keep you through a crisis. His promise is to meet the deepest need that you have. And he knows what it is because he's the one who created you in the first place. Our problem is often we don't know what that great need is. But God wants to reveal, and he's revealed to Abraham. Abram asks this, and it seems like he's contending with God, but God is eating this up. God is loving it because it means that Abraham got it. He knows what he needs from God, and God says, "I am the one who is here to meet that need." God's promise, it's the greatest promise because it satisfies the deepest need. Now secondly, the promise is secured. By faith alone, look at verse six, one of the great verses in all of scripture. It's quoted five times in the New Testament. It says, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. To believe means to trust in, to prove to be true to confirm or support something. Abraham believes in what the Lord says to him. He trusts in God at this point. It's amazing. Now, the Lord didn't just tell him that, but the Lord took him outside, remember? And said, look up at the stars of the heavens. And uh, where Abraham was in Canaan, it wasn't like Philadelphia where you've got Buildings and street lights and lights everywhere, so you can kind of see the stars but can't see them real well. He took them out into the middle of the Poconos where there's no lights but God's lights, right? And He takes them out there wherever. Abram looks to the east and to the west. He sees the stars in the sky shining brightly. He sees the magnificence of God. He sees the might of God. He sees the infinitude of God. He sees the greatness of God. And when he sees that, he's overwhelmed. And the Bible says he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. He decided to look at God himself. You see, For an 80-plus-year-old man who'd been trying with his wife all these years and didn't have any kids, it didn't make sense to believe that all of a sudden he'd, he'd be having kids, right? Didn't make sense. There weren't any Cialis commercials. There weren't any little bathtubs looking over a hill. I never understood in those commercials why there's two bathtubs. Because, well, forget it, but there should be one bathtub. To, to do what the commercial says, but they're, they're, he's not trusting in a pill. He looks to God, and he's trusting in a mighty God. You see, being able to have faith depends on what you're looking at and where you're looking. Because look, look, let's just be honest. Abram could have looked down and saw no reason to believe he was about to have a child. He's an 80-plus-year-old man. It hadn't worked so far. Why is it going to work now? But Abram looked up and he said, God, you can do this. You did that. You did that. You can do this. This is a small thing for you, Lord. Belief seems absurd to an unbeliever, but it makes sense to someone who knows God. See, one of our problems is that we, we need to sometimes stop studying faith and start studying God. Don't pay attention to your faith. Pay attention to your God and you'll have faith in that God to be able to do what he calls you to do. So Abraham believes God. See, there's a connection here in this believing. One author says this. He says, There's an essential connection between experiencing God, loving God, and trusting God. You will trust God only as much as you love Him, and you will love Him to the extent that you've been touched, that you have touched Him, or rather that He has touched you. Abram was a man who was touched. By the might and the love and the grace and the infinitude of God. And he responded. His faith was simply a response to that. It's a response to being overwhelmed by God. But, but this verse says that he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. That means that God took Abram's belief and he said, Based on that alone, based on your belief, I am going to count into your account perfect, sinless righteousness. Now, there's two problems with that. Two problems. Problem number one is Abram didn't have any perfect, sinless righteousness. At best, if you read through the story of Abraham in in the pages of Genesis, you see an inconsistent man a man who sometimes, right here, seems full of faith. Other times, he's a jacked up mess. So we see right after God promises him to bless the nations through him in Genesis 12, later in that same chapter, he goes down into Egypt with his fine-looking wife, Sarah, and she looks so fine that he just knows that If the Egyptians see that she's my wife, they're going to take her and they're going to kill me. So now I'm out of the way. So he says to Sarah, just just tell them that you're my sister. Don't let anyone know that you're my wife. Man of great faith. Right. Man of great faith. He does it again after all this in Genesis chapter 20. In the meantime, we're in Genesis 15 in Genesis 16, the very next chapter. Abram and his wife, Sarah, God's still not coming through on their time schedule. So Sarah has this great idea. Why don't I just give you my maidservant, Hagar, and then you can make a baby with her. Now, after all that I've seen in the scripture about how good looking Sarah was, I mean, even later when she's like, over 89, she's over 90 years old. She's in a place where she's still so good looking that Abram's going to tell her to lie again and say, you're my sister. So Sarah must be like, I'm not going to name names, but she must be incredibly gorgeous, right? And so she says to him, take my maidservant Hagar. And Abram says, sounds like a good plan to me. So what did Hagar look like? I just wonder. She must have been banging, y'all. Anyway, this is who Abram is. He's an inconsistent man. Sometimes he seems like he has faith. Other times he's, he's a jacked up mess. This is who he is. So how can God reckon perfect righteousness to an inconsistent man like Abram? That's a problem. And it's a problem because of the nature of God himself. God is just. God is righteous God is a God of truth. God doesn't make things up and say it's a certain way when it's not in reality that way. God does not bury his head in the sand and say, well, I know Abraham's inconsistent. I know he's a little messed up. I know he's got real problems, but I'm going to act like he's perfectly righteous. God can't do that. That's against his nature as as being true. So the, the wonder of the gospel is this. The righteousness that was credited to Abraham's account did exist. It just didn't exist in Abram. It existed in a man who was going to live 2,000 years after Abram and 2,000 years before you and I, a man named Jesus Christ. It was the righteousness of Jesus Christ who walked this world who lived, and the Bible says, was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Um, The man, Jesus Christ, who, who walked a life of perfect righteousness against every temptation and snare of the devil that was possible, he walked out a life of perfection and righteousness. And so Abram is able to get that righteousness to his account. See, the Lord did not give Abram undeserved credit. He simply gave him credit that he did not deserve. I'm say that one more time. Abram, God did not give Abram undeserved credit. It was deserved by Christ. But he gave him credit that he did not deserve. What is that? That's pure grace. Pure grace, overwhelming grace overwhelming grace that Abram received from the hand of the Lord. Some of us need to know (laughs) a little bit more about that kind of grace. You see, when he gives him that grace, it changes his record forever. Some of you know when you were in elementary school, when I was in elementary school, one of the things that a teacher could get me with is to tell me that if I did a certain thing, it would go on my permanent record, not just my record, but my permanent record. You know, like, really? A spitball in the back of this kid's head is on my permanent record. But I was scared of having something on my permanent record. I did stupid stuff anyway, scared as I was. But some of y'all know more about a permanent record. For real, for real. I have a young man who's very, very close to me, who uh, some years ago was in some trouble and uh, didn't have much money, and so he got a district attorney who basically, or or, or a lawyer uh, provided by the state who was just trying to get the case done and swept out of the way. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. So there was a plea bargain made, and it was not a good plea bargain for him, but all he could see is they said, we'll let you out of jail today. That's all he could see. But the reality is because of that plea bargain, he has something on his record that has made life very difficult for him now for many, many years. The beauty of this promise is that this promise by faith alone changes your record forever. It'll never be the same. Once the record is changed, it never goes back to its old state not based on what you did in the past they don't remember that not based on what you're doing now not based on what you will ever do in the future the record is set as righteous final done done deal look with me at a scripture in Romans chapter 4 Romans 4 I'm gonna read just a few verses here starting at verse 2 For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. See, the good news, Abram knew that he fell in that last number, the one who justifies the ungodly. He could see that in himself. I am that ungodly one. Can you see that in your own self? Do you understand that in yourself? So, Uh, In Matthew chapter nine, as Jesus is uh, having a party with Matthew and tax collectors and other sinners and the religious people are having a problem with that, saying, why does Jesus always hang out with these slimy folks? What's up with Jesus? Jesus gets word of it. It says in verse 12, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a word of salvation, but it's also a word to to Christians who uh, a friend of mine said this this week. Our tendency is to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned. What did they do? The first thing they did, they hid from God and they put on fig leaves, right? And so my friend said, we're good at going out and buying designer fig leaves. So I don't know what the cool stores are. I'm so far away from the cool stores, it's not even funny. But So I'm going to Urban Outfitters. Yeah, me at Urban Outfitters. I don't think so, but... I'm going to Urban Outfitters and looking for some really cool fig leaves that will take my sinful nastiness and make it just look a little bit more acceptable and better. Right. So that's what we do. That's what we often do. And God is saying, come to me as the ungodly. Come to me unwashed. Don't purify yourself. Don't put anything on Come to me naked, come to me in your sin, come to me in your shame, but come to me. That's the word of the Lord. Where are you making fig leaves in your life today? Where's your factory, your fig leaf factory? See, our problem is not our filthiness. It never is. Our problem is the tenacity in which we cover it up. It's the cover-up. It's not the initial sin. Brennan Manning says, says this. He says, when a man or woman is truly honest, not just working at it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. A few weeks ago, I got in the mail an assessment. and It was a very negative assessment the way I read it. Now, that wouldn't have been a problem to me except it was about me, and then it was a problem. Negative assessment. Just read things. I'm like, ah, it made me angry. It made me extremely mad. And I began absolutely right away to attack everyone who played a part in that assessment of me. How dare you? You don't know me. Who do you think you are? I know something about you. I don't know them at all. I know something about you. I, I might be bad, but you're worse. This I begin to see this tendency in my life to just cover myself up. Don't you dare expose me. Don't you look at me and and, and see through my fig leaves and call me what it really is. Don't do that to me. I can't take it. And it was a gracious act of God to me, exposing the degree to which I want to cover myself up, but it was also an invitation from God to me not to cover myself up anymore. Let God cover you. The righteous one will live by faith. Amen. By faith, Abraham was declared righteous. So the last thing today, not only was the promise did the promise satisfy our deepest need and secure and was secured by faith alone, faith in God, but also the promise is sealed with the divine covenant. Back to Genesis chapter fifteen, from verses seven through the rest of this verse is the unfolding of this covenant, this incredible covenant that that the Lord makes with Abram. It starts in verse seven. He said to him. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he goes on and you see this unfolding of a covenant. Now, when God speaks to us and when God comes to us in any way, he's always um, putting himself and, and, and coming to us in forms that we can recognize, in forms that we can understand, or else we would not be able to know God at all. So scripture is a great example of that. God gives words in human language so that we can read them and we can begin to understand something about God. That's the way God interacts with his people and allows us to know him. So in this situation, when God comes to Abram and he begins to give him this covenant, he gives this covenant in a form that is knowable and that's understandable and is common to Abram. So he he brings this covenant in a way that Abram can understand exactly what's happening. There was a type of treaty or covenant that was made in the ancient Near East at the time of Abram. It was called a suzerain vassal treaty or covenant. So the suzerain is the great king, the high king. The vassal is the lowly king, the one who's going to serve the suzerain, and so God comes to Abram and makes this covenant, and we see this throughout other scriptures as well. When the law comes through Moses, it's in the form of this type of treaty, this type of covenant that God gives the law to Moses. But before Moses, he comes to Abram with this covenant in a form that he can recognize and understand. So there's five things about this type of covenant that are uh, always present in these. Now, go through these quickly. First is a preamble that identifies the lordship of the great king. So the Lord comes and says, I am Yahweh, covenant name, I am the Lord. He identifies himself. Secondly, there's a historical prologue in these treaties. That is, the, the, the Lord of the great king is going to tell you why I'm so great. What have I done for you? I am the one who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and I'm bringing you into this amazing land and you will possess it. So he talks to Abram about that. There's also ethical stipulations in an agreement like this. There are sanctions in the agreement like this, a list of blessings and curses. You see that in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 where they're all listed out there. And there's also a provision for succession What about after you're gone as the vassal who comes after you? That's in this treaty. But it's interesting that this treaty, this covenant, is missing a couple of things from that list. In God's covenant with Abram, even though it met that type of covenant uh, treaty in every way, but in this covenant, there are no ethical stipulations for Abram. In other words, there is no word from God that says, if you do this, Abram then I will give you this land then I will give you this offspring we see that in the law of Moses over and over again but in this covenant hundreds of years before the law of Moses there are no stipulations on Abram there's no if you then I there's simply what I'm about to do there's also no curses although Abram understood When God told him to take these animals and cut them in two, that that was a foreshadowing of the curse of anyone who would break that covenant. So he takes these three animals and cuts them in two and lays them beside each other. And there's going to be a part of this ceremony we'll look at in a minute, and Abraham understood it, where the curses would come down on Abraham a member or members of that covenant. Now look at verse 18 quickly with me to understand the idea of covenant a little more. It says on the day, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The word there for made a covenant is actually a Hebrew word, karat, which means to cut. It's used for cutting a branch off a tree. It's used when they go into the land Many years later in the book of Numbers, they go into the promised land, they cut a cluster of grapes. Same word used. It's used when the Israelites are in war and they cut off the head of an enemy. Same word used. It's even used in Genesis chapter 17 for the covenant of circumcision where you cut off the foreskin. So when God says, I'm making a covenant with you, it's not just making a covenant, but it is cutting a covenant. It's not a a pinky swear on behalf of God saying, I promise I'll do it. But it is a covenant of cutting that involves blood and it involves the deepest level of commitment on behalf of God. So it's cutting a covenant, not just a pinky promise. So God has made this incredible promise to Abram. He satisfies and tells him, I'm going to meet your deepest need, Abram. And Abram believes it by faith alone. And now God is beginning this covenant process with Abram. and, And Abram goes through and he cuts the animals. But look at verse 11. In verse 11, when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So in the midst of making this covenant, their trouble arises. And these birds start coming. They're not little sparrows. Tweet, 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 tweet. No. They are big, ugly, nasty birds of prey, right? They're, I don't know what kind of birds, but they're hawks and eagles and and birds with big old beaks who can hurt you. And you can just imagine Abram is trying to keep these birds away. It's foreshadowing that this is going to come through some trial and some difficulty, then God says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. The same word is used there of Adam in Genesis 2.21 when God put him into a deep sleep in order to take a rib out of him to make Eve. So this isn't just, I've had a long day, I'm having a deep sleep. This is divine, divine anesthetic, right? Right? This divine anesthesia administered by God to put him into this deep level of sleep. And it says, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. So there's a sense of foreboding and doom and dread that falls upon Abram. What is that? Keep reading. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They'll be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. The same word for afflicted there is used in Exodus chapter 1 of the servitude of God's people in Egypt, their slavery. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. But he says in verse 14. But I'll bring judgment upon the nation and they that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And so God promises him all of this, and yet there's a sense of there is still something very difficult to go through, even though God has promised the end as to be as good as it could ever be imagined to be he said to get before you get there you're going to go through something Abram it's going to be difficult for 400 years this offspring I'm talking to you about will be living in slavery he doesn't tell him where God was gracious you know if God had told Abram where he'd probably tell his son don't you ever go down to Egypt God didn't tell him about Egypt. He just says, somewhere, you're going to go somewhere, and you're going to be slaves for 400 years. The promises of God are sure. The promises of God don't change. Nothing in heaven or in hell or on earth can change the promise of God toward you for your good if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you that you're going to go through something before you grasp all of those promises. It's not going to come by just dancing through a field of daisies. It's going to be a little bit more difficult than that. So let's look at these last verses. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So when Abram had split open these animals, he knew that the way that covenants were ratified was that both the great king and the lesser king, both the suzerain and the vassal, would have to walk through those broken animals. And what they were doing is saying is that if I break my part of the covenant, the, uh, the, what has happened to these animals, let that also happen to me. I bring down that curse on my head. But when Abram is asleep, the Lord himself passes through in the form of a, a, a smoking a smoking what does it say? a smoking pot and a flaming torch. The Lord himself passes through. Abram doesn't pass through anything. God says, "You, you none of these curses are for you. I take them on myself." And we know 2,000 years later, God did that in the Lord Jesus Christ. He took the penalty for your sin. He took the penalty for my sin. He He bore the fullness of the wrath of God upon himself, and we bear none of it? That's what the Lord was teaching Abram. That's what the Lord is teaching us through him. I want to look at one last scripture as we close. Galatians chapter 3. One last scripture we'll be done. Galatians 3, starting at verse 15. The Lord says, through Paul, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promises, but God gave it to Abram by a promise. The same promise that Abram received from the Lord, and in another place, Galatians 3.8 says, the Lord was preaching the gospel to Abram beforehand. He preached the gospel to him that The sacrifice would not be put on you. It would be put on another. And because of that, you have hope and you have the possibility of life. This is the greatest promise because it is the gospel promise. It's the greatest promise because it's sealed not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of the precious lamb of God. It's the greatest promise because it's not a maybe promise, but it's an eternal promise from the Lord himself, and he will not be found to be a liar. It's the greatest promise because it's a promise for you today. It's here. It's now. It's for you. It's not for wise and intelligent or the moral and the upright and the clean. It's not for the strong and the healthy, but it's for the weak, the sick, the stained, the shamed. It's for the dirty and the destitute. It's the greatest promise because it's for everyone who's ever struggled with sin and lost over and over and over and over again, miserably lost in shame and in your own mess. It's the greatest promise because if you'll believe it, God will pass will will pass by your sins and cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness. If you'll believe in God, he'll do for you what he did for Abram. You'll believe the Lord and he will give you the gift of Christ's righteousness and count his righteousness to your account. So for unbelievers today, there's a clear message to you. You need to come to Christ. That's the only place where life is. Any other covering up will not yield life for you. But it's also a message for believers. For believers, it's a message to come fully to Christ, wholly to Christ, not covering yourself up, not doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden, but to come to him in all of your shame and your nakedness and to say, Lord, I need you. Don't cover yourself up. Don't make yourself look better than you really look. Come in honesty before God and receive from him what he longs to give to you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the blessings of your word. We thank you, Lord, that your promise is great. Your promise is true. And your promise is eternal. We thank you that you don't change. You're not one way today and another way tomorrow, but you're the God that we can count on forever. So, Lord, we just ask that you would apply your word to our hearts. Help us to look to you and not anywhere else to find that hope that we so desperately need. Lord, we Lift all these things up to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.